Episode 20 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 5.1, Battle Analysis, The Battle of Manti. This episode begins Part 5 of this podcast series. This is a part that I title The Professional Soldier. It serves as the introduction to the most detailed discussions on war, warfare, and military leadership in the Book of Mormon. We will be introduced, or reintroduced in one case, to the most important personalities in the entire record. We have the single greatest and most detailed battle analysis, which is the subject of this episode, and we meet Moroni, Tiancum, Lehi, and Amalekiah. I want to begin this part with a quote from Alma chapter 48, verses 11 to 13 and 17. And Moroni was a strong and a mighty man. He was a man of a perfect understanding, yea, a man that did not delight in bloodshed, a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Yea, a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people, a man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. Yea, and he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ, and he has sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of his blood. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been, and were, and ever would be, like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Close quote. Moroni was the epitome of the Nephite leader. He is also the first soldier that Mormon describes among a history of warriors. He was dedicated to the state and state objectives over fighting, killing, or warfare. He stopped in the heat of battle to accept surrenders. He ordered halts to killing to negotiate terms. His efforts toward a better coexistence, rather than simply killing the enemy, set him apart from many of his peer commanders and certainly apart from his opposing leaders. It is in the narrative of the three campaigns that he fights against the Lamanites that we learn about Mormon's purposes for using warfare as his vehicle for instruction. In this part of the podcast, a detailed discussion covers the various adaptations and adjustments made and the analysis of several battles. The wealth of detail in this portion of Mormon's narrative allows a much deeper discussion of how Nephites and Lamanites engaged each other in conflict. As we made clear in the previous part, the Nephite army had transformed to an institutional force with a semi-professional leadership who understood the combined lessons of the innovations of Zenith and his descendants, the lessons of the approximately 59 generations of the Jaredite experience, and the military and political necessities forced on the Nephites by the enormous casualties of the tremendous battle of the wilderness. This part includes two of the three separate wars fought in the time of Moroni, the Zoramite War and the Moriantonite War. 
The Amalekiahite War has its own part in this series, as it was the central metaphor of war used by Mormon, though we will reference elements of that war during part five of our podcast series. The wars are named for the dissenter groups that provided the majority of the leadership, as the Lamanites during this period seemed to be serving more as the fillers for the hatred of the dissenters. The Zoramite War and the Moriantonite War are short and limited in this discussion to one episode per war, as they encompassed two battles and one battle, respectively. Moroni was the ideal of the empathetic leader, or a leader who had empathy for the understanding and actions of his opponent. He did not simply identify his enemy through the use of spies, but he saw the battlefield from his opponent's perspective. He knew what the opposing commander wanted to do, how he would probably try to do this, and how he would react to various changes and innovations that Moroni would present to him. This ability, and Moroni's complete mastery of it, was enough to make him stand apart as one of the greatest battlefield leaders of all time. Moroni was not a great innovator, but he did put all of the previous innovations into a larger combined and contiguous context. What this means is he tied the developments of Zenith, Noah, and Limhi with the studies and grand understanding of Coriantumr from the Book of Ether to create a linked defensive plan that allowed the Nephites to force the Lamanites to fight a multi-theater war within the personnel constraints that the Nephites were under. These efforts also forced the Lamanites to make adjustments in tactics. The basic premise of putting strength against your opponent's weakness was demonstrated as Amaron used subterfuge and knowledge of the Nephite political divisions to create divisions within the defenses, thereby allowing him to capture cities. The give and take of methods and tactics affected every level of strategy in this most emphasized of Nephite eras. The time span in this period is one of the shortest in the Book of Mormon, but the detail is at its richest. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I recommend reading the Book of Mormon account before listening to this episode so that the events as recorded by Mormon are fresh in your minds. It is also recommended to reread the account following the lessons learned to re-examine mine and your own thoughts on the events. The events that we will discuss are recorded in the Book of Alma, chapter 43, beginning at about verse 18 to chapter 44, ending at about verse 20 or thereabouts. The Battle of Manti, or the First Battle of Manti, according to my naming convention, is the battle narrative in the Book of Mormon. A battle narrative is a discussion of the events associated with a battle. Ideally, such a narrative explains the causes of the battle, how the battle was planned and arranged, the events of the battle when the decision was still in doubt, and then the results and significance of the battle. The Battle of Manti, as recorded in the Book of Mormon, provides all of that. In many ways, 
This is the single best battle narrative from this era anywhere in recorded history. This battle takes place in 74 BC, and we have no comparably detailed battle narrative from any contemporary people or army. I want to begin my discussion on this battle with a quote from The Civil Wars by Julius Caesar. This quote is taken from the speech given by Julius Caesar to his soldiers prior to the Battle of Pharsalus in what is today northeastern Greece in 48 BC, and I quote, When, according to the custom of war, he was exhorting his army to battle and setting forth his unbroken record of kindness to his men, he particularly reminded them that he could call his troops to witness with what zeal he had sought peace, what negotiations he had conducted. He had never, he said, wished to squander the blood of his soldiers or to deprive the republic of either of its armies. Close quote. Here we have Caesar expressing his efforts to have peace before going to war. I hope you recognize an analog of Caesar's actions in a near contemporary commander, that of Moroni. The Battle of Manti provides the most detailed account of a battle within the Book of Mormon. This is the battle on which Mormon chose to focus the most space, and therefore it will provide the greatest information for the discussion on armed conflict. As with most battles fought prior to the Amalekiahite War, it was an open field battle. Despite this commonality, this battle stands as the epitome of Moroni's military genius, his emphasis on preparing the battlefield, whether it be a literal battlefield for a single battle or a conceptual battlefield encompassing the entire Nephite nation. We also see Moroni's implementation of several lessons learned from both the Xenophites and the Jaredites, as well as from the prophet Alma. This battle is our introduction to Moroni. No doubt Mormon chose this battle as it clearly painted a picture of Moroni's two attributes of military genius, preparation and application. No other commander's character is as clearly detailed for us by Mormon as is Moroni's. Once again, we are reminded that Mormon provided this information for a wise purpose, and it was not to prepare us to be successful temporal battlefield commanders. As I continue, it is important to reflect on why these details exist in the story. I remind you that Mormon shows us principles and truths as much or more than he tells them to us. The details are part of what he shows. We see in the story a commander who understood all levels of strategy as he prepared soldiers for success on the technical level. He divided and placed forces to guarantee success on the tactical level. He understood the importance of using multiple types of weapons, formations, and skills on the operational level. He ensured that he protected other areas of the Nephite state on the theater level and he constantly reminded the people he protected and those he commanded of the grand strategy behind their defense. We also have a great view into a commander who identified his enemy in all aspects through use of various means. 
he positioned his force to isolate the opponent's force on the battlefield and prevented their maneuver while giving him the position of advantage. I want to note he did all of this while being outnumbered, as we're told, by more than two to one. These efforts led to emotional and physical destruction of the opposing army. Throughout all of this, Moroni never lost sight of the real purpose for this battle, and he demonstrated personal control of his character, denying the bloodlust so common in battles of this same era. This is more than just a single battle. It was part of the Zoramite War and the beginning of a string of wars that fell within the war metaphor emphasized by Mormon in the latter half of the Book of Alma. This campaign and war marked the first time the Lamanites sought domination of the Nephites in more than just the area in and around the city of Zarahemla. The Lamanites did not get discouraged by a single setback, but continued their desire for conquering the Nephites and bringing them into subjugation. The story begins with an engagement won by the Nephites without bloodshed, and then continues with a battle in a separate area from the first. This is a difficult task even in today's world where commanders can follow an enemy through electronic assistance. It was nearly unheard of in ancient times. We will discuss why as the analysis progresses. Overview of the Battle This battle takes place in relatively short succession following the tremendous battle of the wilderness, which occurred in 77 BC, or the 15th year of the reign of the judges. The battles in this episode take place in 74 BC, or the 18th year of the reign of the judges. It also comes following the marginally successful and partially failing missionary effort to the Zoramites in the land of Antionum. We discussed this missionary effort in episode 9, or part 2.3, Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. The Zoramites, as a political entity, rejected the teachings of Alma II and his fellow missionaries. Those who accepted those teachings were expelled from Antionum and went to Jershon to live with the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, recently renamed the people of Ammon. Following the expulsion, the Zoramites challenged the people of Ammon to also expel the Zoramite converts, which the people of Ammon refused to do. Alma II's great fear and the reason for the missionary effort to Antionum was to prevent the Zoramites from going over to the Lamanites. In this, the missionary effort was a failure. The Zoramites entered into a correspondence with the Lamanites, and more than that, a military association or alliance such that the Lamanite armies involved in the battles to be discussed were led by Zoramite commanders. The Nephites believed that the people of Ammon were exposed in Jershon and moved them to Melech, which seemed to be an area closer to Zarahemla and better protected from Lamanite attack, and somewhere in the western half of the land of Zarahemla. The Lamanites and Zoramites combined forces and marched against Jershon, where they faced a heavily armored Nephite army. The sight of the Nephites in this armor caused the Lamanites and Zoramites to think better of battle and to depart from the field of battle without a violent collision. 
Moroni sent spies after the Lamanite army and spies to ask Alma too where the army was going. Alma too told Moroni that the army was going to Manti, and there Moroni went, and that was where this battle took place. Geographical Setting Location The campaign began in and around the lands of Antionum and Jershon. Both lands were on the eastern edge of the land of Zarahemla. Antionum bordered the south wilderness, which was, quote, full of the Lamanites, close quote, from Alma 31.3. Following the defeat at Jershon, the Lamanite army moved away, but continued with its desire to attack. It moved west and south to the land of Manti, which was in the southern area of the land of Zarahemla, near the head of the river Sidon, as we are told in Alma 43.22. Based on previous events that happened in and around this area, it seems as if Manti was the southernmost city or the city closest to the Lamanites in the Nephite state along the Sidon River. We are told that this happens near the head of the river Sidon, which means that the Sidon River must have been something significant with respect to water flow, as the waters are still powerful enough to wash away the dead, as we will see later on in this episode. And that is true even at the head of the river, or near the head of the river. Terrain slash vegetation Mormon described the area around the land of Manti as being to the west of the river Sidon, with the hill Ripla on the eastern side of the river, in Alma 43, verses 31 to 32. There was a west valley mentioned in Alma 43, 27, which means that there must be a water source that created the valley. The mention of a river, adjacent valleys, and a hill has led to a conceptual sketch that I will post on Facebook. The wilderness described is probably wooded terrain that surrounded the city and its farmland. The vegetation at the site of the battle was not an impediment to the fighting, as no mention was made of difficulty in moving the armies on the ground, seeing leaders, or hearing commands. Additionally, no mention was made in the record of the time of year or any impact on the battle caused by weather or climate. I will mention the river more later, but the River Sidon is a critical part of this battle. The U.S. Army characterizes a river as a danger area, meaning that it is a dangerous thing or place to cross. That is true. I have done peaceful river crossings while backpacking, and they are treacherous even without someone trying to kill you. Add the killing part, and it gets truly dangerous. The role of vegetation on the march is also important. One should expect that a large army, one of 10,000 or more fighters, moving on a wilderness path would be spread out over many kilometers or miles, as there were no paved roads, or certainly not many, and almost as certainly not in this part of the land of Zarahemla. One should picture the army moving along paths where they might be able to walk single file or maybe at most four to eight abreast. That would only be on the widest part of the trails. I'll get into this more later. Who was involved? Nephite forces. Moroni divided his force several times throughout the course of this campaign. 
The only number available in the text refers to the Lamanite army led by Zarahemna, numbering in the thousands in Alma 43.5. We are also told that the Lamanite army was more than twice the size of the armies led by Moroni by the time they fought in the land of Manti in Alma 43.51. In addition, we are told in Alma 44.21 that the casualties on both sides at the end of the battle were so large that they could not be numbered. When all of this information from the written record is put together, we can surmise that armies of several thousand probably faced each other in the land around Jershon. The Lamanites would not have turned back at Jershon if the Nephites had been significantly smaller than they, regardless of the newly identified armor. Despite the organization and the relative equivalence in size around Jershon, I still think the Nephites were outnumbered. I just don't think it was by more than two to one. Debatable. But Moroni divided his force and left a portion to maintain security in the vicinity of Jershon while he continued on to Manti. It is possible that the force he left in Jershon was about one-third of his original army. In the land of Manti, he recruited locals to provide reinforcements, and he further divided his force. He created three major subordinate units and a fourth smaller unit. Moroni commanded one unit on the west side of the river. That was probably the largest unit, as we will see in the course of the battle, it does the most fighting. Lehi, too, commanded another unit on the east side of the river and some other commander, who goes unnamed in the record, whom I imagine to be from the people of Manti, commanded a third group placed on the west side of the river and on the south side of Manti. The fourth smaller unit was led by another undisclosed person and was on the north side of the hill Ripla, causing me to surmise that Lehi was on the south side of the hill, or as I show him in the sketch, the southwest portion of the hill as it approached the river. This is the battle where the Lamanites were surprised by the appearance of Nephites in armor. As stated previously, armor was not unique at this time. The Xenophites used armor, and in the Amlicite War, the Lamanites had adopted some level of armor as well. At a conceptual level, there was nothing new about the armor for either side, but what Moroni showed at this time was not a difference of kind, armor, where none had been used before, but a difference in degree, complete or near-complete upper body armor coverage as expressed in Alma chapter 43, verse 19, and I quote, breastplates and arm shields, yea, and also shields to defend their heads, and also they were dressed with thick clothing, close quote. In brief, I am imagining a Nephite army about 4,500 to 6,000 strong. I am doing this, as we will see over and over again in the era of Moroni and the Amalekiahite War, because I think that there are common multiples of 2,000 and 6,000 for Nephite forces. I therefore imagine a captain commands about 2,000 and a chief captain about 6,000. We will discuss this in greater detail in a later episode in this part of our podcast series.
Lamanite forces. The Lamanite leader was Zarahemna. The intent or scheme of maneuver for Zarahemna was never explained, and as the battle was an ambush against him, it is difficult to identify any organization on the part of the Lamanites. This is a point we will come back to multiple times, because it doesn't ever seem like the Lamanites apply a level of organization during battles equivalent to that of the Nephites. We are told in Alma 43.6 that Amalekites and Zoramites were appointed as chief captains over the Lamanites, informing us that there was a subordinate unit system within the Lamanite army, though we are left without details. We are told in Alma 43.20-21 that the Lamanites did not have any individual armor. In fact, Mormon did not tell us this once, but he re-emphasized the point. He first stated that the Lamanites were naked, and then he said that they did not have armor. By doing this, he placed them in direct opposition to the Nephite armor, which included thick clothing and shields. The Lamanites had neither thick clothing nor shields. The Lamanites did come to battle well-armed with a full array of missile and melee weapons available to the people of the day. In fact, at least Zarahemna possessed multiple weapons, sword, scimitar, and bow. This may have been because of his role as chief captain, or it may have been common for Lamanite warriors to possess more than one weapon. Or, as I'm assuming, He was a Zoramite. Maybe it was a peculiarity of the Zoramite people. This isn't clear. The Lamanite force, I'm imagining, is somewhere around 9,000 to 12,000, as it is more than twice the size of the Nephite force. Key leaders in the battle, Nephite forces. Obviously, Moroni. He was the chief captain of the Nephite armies. Moroni was clearly viewed by Mormon as the ideal Nephite warrior, or rather, the ideal Nephite soldier, as Moroni is not about fighting wars, rather, he is about defending and protecting his state. He is also, in the Book of Mormon, the archetype of the soldier of Christ. He was appointed as chief captain at the age of 25. We're not sure whether that was immediately preceding this battle, It is theoretically possible that he was the chief captain at the tremendous battle of the wilderness, though, as I mentioned in that episode, and I will say again here, I don't think so, because I think Mormon would have mentioned that. He was a man of great physical strength, personal courage, spiritual maturity, and emotional stability. He maintained his focus on the purpose of fighting, not on killing but on achieving peace and security for his people. As we will talk about Moroni much in this podcast series, he also was not perfect. He had a temper. He did things wrong. And we will see that play out in this battle and again later. The other named commander is Lehi too, commander of the Western Force. It is not specified, but possible that this was the same Lehi II who served as a subordinate commander for his father, Zoram II, in regaining Nephite prisoners, as expressed in Alma chapter 16, verse 5. I believe that the two were the same person, and I will refer to him as such 
throughout the podcast series. In part, it's because I think it makes a better story. But as I will discuss in later episodes, I also think that there are good reasons for assuming this. But we'll talk more about Lehi too in later episodes. Lamanite Forces Zarahemna, Chief Captain of the Lamanite Army It is unclear what Zarahemna's origins were, though Mormon says on several occasions that all of the chief captains of the Lamanites were Amalekites and Zoramites. This leads to a probability that Zarahemna was from one of these two clans or tribes. It is also possible that he was a descendant of Laman I and simply recognized the benefit of using the other tribal groups to provide his subordinate commanders. Zarahemna is what I refer to as a good bad guy, in that he is honorable. He takes covenants and promises seriously. In this sense, he is rather different than a lot of villains as portrayed in popular culture today. We'll talk more about that as we go on. Grand and Theater Context The missionary efforts of Alma II, Amulek, and others among the Zoramites in the land of Antionum led to a schism between the followers of Zoram III and the believers in the message of Alma II. The physical division occurred as the believers were expelled from Antionum and journeyed to Jershon, where they were welcomed by the people of Ammon. It seems that the people of Antionum intended for this expulsion to cause remorse and a desire to return, rather than a realignment of their allegiance. A demand, as recorded in Alma 35.8, was sent to Jershon that the people of Antionum be expelled from the city. The people of Ammon refused and continued to provide comfort and assistance to the refugees. The refusal of the people of Ammon led to a political separation as Zoram III began a correspondence with the Lamanites, a correspondence that probably was going on before, but it begins in earnest now. There was a Lamanite settlement called Sidon close by and with which a correspondence could proceed as is inferred from Alma chapter 39 verse 3. A Zoramite-Lamanite alliance was formed, and the Lamanites began to marshal forces in the wilderness, bordering the Nephite lands and close to, if not part of, the land of Antionum. The people of Ammon were moved from Jershon to the land of Melech, and Nephite armies occupied the land of Jershon instead, as recorded in Alma 35 verse 13. On several occasions, Mormon referred to the use of propaganda to incite hatred among the Lamanites. Propaganda is my word, not his. The impression is that though the Lamanites may have disliked or been resentful of the success of the Nephite society, they were not angry enough to seek total domination. It was typically a direct result of dissensions that the major campaigns of conquest occurred. This leads toward an assessment that it was the recent anger and the detailed discussion of the flaws of the Nephites that brought the Lamanites to an acceptance of the idea of attack and domination of their peer society. 
Propaganda played a critical role here, as Zarahemna did not just incite the Lamanites, but he also ensured consistent anger and hatred by placing commanders over the Lamanite forces that had a deep hatred of the Nephites. In this environment, the Lamanites began massing their forces in the wilderness in the vicinity of Antionum. We also have the benefit of the objectives of the two forces in this campaign. The Lamanite, or more specifically, Zarahemna's objectives, are outlined below and come from Alma chapter 43, verses 7 and 8. It is an interesting note that Zarahemna's desires, as explained through Mormon's hindsight, were as much directed against the Lamanites as against his Nephite opponents. They were as follows. Preserve there, the Lamanite, hatred towards the Nephites. Bring them, the Lamanites, into subjection to the accomplishment of his designs. Stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. Usurp great power over them, the Lamanites, and gain power over the Nephites by bringing them into bondage. My emphasis on his efforts directed against the Lamanites comes from a consistent challenge when reading the Book of Mormon, and it is the interpretation of the meaning of pronouns. In many cases, the them or their could be to refer to the Lamanites, or it could be interpreted as being directed against the Nephites. You have my appreciation, though I recognize another interpretation could be just as valid. The Nephite objectives are expressed in Alma chapter 43 verse 9 and were as follows. Support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies. Preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty that they might worship God according to their desires. Operational Context Earlier episodes discussed the purpose and use of tactical reconnaissance. This is the use of reconnaissance to serve a tactical objective. In the build-up to the defense of Jershon, we see Moroni's use of operational reconnaissance, or reconnaissance to serve a larger operational objective. He continued to conduct such reconnaissance throughout this campaign. Mormon explained in Alma chapter 43, verse 4, that the Nephites saw that the Lamanites were coming against them to war and were therefore able to prepare to meet them. Now, this cannot refer to physical observation by all Nephites. People standing in their fields in the land of Jershon did not see the Lamanites coming against them to war. We know this from Mormon's comment that this seeing allowed them time to prepare. This means that the site in question provided days, weeks, or maybe even months of advanced warning and was probably conducted by one or more individuals who then provided information to Moroni. These may have been members of the community of Antionum who disagreed with the decisions of their leaders but did not want that disagreement to be made known. It could also have been members of Moroni's army, men trained to conduct such missions, Later in this episode, there are more discussions on the manner in which Moroni conducted reconnaissance 
and counterinsurgency operations. It was not uncommon for him later in his career to use specially selected soldiers for missions to gain information on enemy positions and strength. Therefore, it is probable that he would use such specially selected men to provide such critical information on the disposition and conduct of the correspondence between the people of Antionum and the Lamanites. The Lamanites came to the battlefield outside of Jershon and realized that they were not physically prepared on an individual level to meet this newly equipped Nephite army. They then withdrew into the wilderness. Though they did not surrender their design to bring the Nephites into bondage, they moved away and sought to conduct an attack on a weaker and less prepared location. Moroni took this opportunity to further demonstrate his skill with reconnaissance. He sent spies after the Lamanite army to maintain contact with them and to know where they were going. Moroni understood that this was reactive information. He could only know what they had done and not what they were planning to do. To compensate for this reactive information, he also sent emissaries to Alma too to gain divine assistance in understanding intentions. While waiting for a report on Alma II's direction and counsel, I suggest that Moroni began the movement of his army towards Zarahemla and the center of Nephite lands in anticipation of the new direction of Lamanite attack. If he had simply sat and waited in Jershon, he would not have been in position to precede the enemy to Manti, recruit forces, and prepare such an elaborate maneuver scheme. He divided his force to provide operational security for the southeastern portion of the land of Zarahemla, and he marched with the rest of his army to his new battlefield. With the identification of the enemy at all levels, Moroni could execute one of the most desired military operations, an ambush of an entire opposing army. Moroni moved to Manti and began the process of establishing the ambush. Technical Context Armor has been addressed in multiple previous episodes and will be addressed again later. However, I want to place emphasis on the difference represented in this battle. Armor can be a generic term and can mean any of a wide variety of protective measures taken to assist individuals in combat. The examples in the ancient world, both eastern and western hemispheres of the globe, demonstrate a wide variance from thick cotton shirts to crafted and fashioned solid breastplates and a variety of styles in between. Armor can be made of metal, cloth, leather, or wood. Shields are included in this broader discussion of armor, and they have been made of solid materials and woven wicker. It is important to keep in mind the variety of armor possibilities when reading Mormon's descriptions of armor. Though they are masterful works of art, the Book of Mormon paintings of Arnold Freeberg must not drive the thought process of the reader toward a specific style or material of armor. In the first part of our podcast series, weapons were defined not by name, but by style and intent, thrusting, cutting, slashing, piercing, etc. In the case of armor, this is also useful. Mormon described the effect of the use of a new style of armor among the Nephites and Lamanites in this fashion, and I quote from Alma chapter 43 verses 19 to 21. 
And when the armies of the Lamanites saw the people of Nephi, or that Moroni had prepared his people with breastplates and with arm shields, yea, and also shields to defend their heads, and also they were dressed with thick clothing, now the army of Zarahemla was not prepared with any such thing. They had only their swords and their scimitars, their bows and their arrows, their stones and their slings, and they were naked, save it were a skin which was girded about their loins. Yea, all were naked, save it were the Zoramites and the Amalekites. But they were not armed with breastplates nor shields. Therefore they were exceedingly afraid of the armies of the Nephites because of their armor, notwithstanding their number being so much greater than the Nephites. Close quote. This is the first use of the word shield in the Book of Mormon. Armor was used earlier, but here Moroni introduced a new concept of shielding. It is not clear what is meant by the use of the term shield. An arm shield could be a standard Near Eastern shield carried on the arm, but that provided protection to more than just the arm. Or it could be smaller shield-like devices fastened to each arm to protect the arms individually. In a later description of Moroni preparing himself from Alma 46.13, we are told that he fastened on shields. In the later Second Battle of Noah in Alma 49.24, the Nephite shields are described as protecting the upper bodies of Nephite soldiers and therefore lead one to the more common Near Eastern style carried shield. This would also add some to the intimidation factor in the initial encounter. It is likely that in the Moroni period, the Nephites had shields they carried as well as shields they fastened to provide maximum protection. It is also possible that this was a process of innovation, where initially they were fastened shields, followed by the development of carried shields, or vice versa. Mormon is unclear on the specifics. What is clear is that it was new and revolutionary and frightening to the Lamanite opponents. One of the clearest descriptions of this armor comes from when Moroni straps his armor on just before carrying the title of liberty. We are given this description in Alma chapter 46, verse 13, and I quote, And he fastened on his headplate, and his breastplate, and his shields, and girded on his armor about his loins, and he took the pole, which had on the end thereof his rent coat, and he called it the title of liberty. And he bowed himself to the earth, and he prayed mightily unto his God for the blessings of liberty to rest upon his brethren, so long as there should a band of Christians remain to possess the land. Close quote. Moroni placed his armor on his body as he prepared to bear forth the title of liberty. Here is another description of Nephi personal armor. The use of the term headplate is somewhat odd. What was this? Was it another way to indicate a helmet? Or was it a different device altogether? It is unclear. The plural use of the word shield in the previous quote and later occurrences leads to an image of a single device of multiple parts and against the traditional single-piece helmet. However, in this second quote, there is a singular use of the term plate. The helmet of Roman legionnaires had cheek pieces as well as the head covering. It would be possible to refer to such a helmet in the plural. The single use of head plate leads to a more traditional and simpler helmet view. 
The image of the Roman legionnaires is not to provide a specific image or example of what a headplate or head shields was or were, but to rather identify that the use of these terms could refer to simple and commonly understood designs or to more exotic ones. Regardless of the exact image, which it is impossible to know, the reader can clearly see the evolution and intent of the pieces of armor. Moroni had taken the earlier armor, which was probably thick leather or cloth of some sort, and added to it more solid pieces designed to protect vital parts of the body. The breastplate was an item of protection for the chest, arm shields protecting the forearms, which were the most exposed part of the human body in ancient combat, and headplate or head shields provided protection for the head. These were the basic areas of human armor for millennia, and Moroni is the one who provided these as a preparation to his people. Other aspects of the technical level of strategy are not different in this case than in previous battles. We are not given information on formations, design, or technique of actual engagement. It is a safe assumption that missile weapons were the weapon of choice while the Lamanites were crossing the river. The nature of the engagement as an ambush allowed the Nephites to better utilize their smaller force and create panic in a larger force without engaging the entire force. Not until the Lamanite army gathered on the west side of the river did they gain some semblance of formation and begin to fight in what must have been a more comfortable and normal battle setting. The Nephite surprise attack on the Lamanite army's rear denied the Lamanite warrior's ability to fully see and comprehend the enemy. Each individual Lamanite warrior was imagining an opponent rather than seeing them, as was the standard. Most battles in the record prior to this one were fought in relatively open fields with arrayed forces that allowed both sides to comprehend the enemy before engagement. Not here. The soldiers of Lehi too understood their enemy, but the Lamanites remembered only an armored foe too intimidating to engage that was now causing havoc in their rear. Panic was the natural result of this departure from the standard use of technical strategy. Tactical Chronology Moroni moved his army to the land of Manti, where he began a recruiting effort. He also placed reconnaissance assets around the area to prevent surprise, since the biggest danger to an ambush is to allow itself to be surprised. He divided his army into four separate maneuver elements, three large forces and one smaller one. He placed his most trusted subordinate with the most challenging mission when he put Lehi II and his force on the eastern shore of the river. He also placed the new recruits in and around their city to defend it. He placed himself and his portion of the army on the west, secreted in the valley and best positioned to protect the main mobility corridor through the land of Manti, where he felt the main effort would be directed. A smaller force was placed on the north of the hill Ripla, possibly to ensure that there was no surprise and to maintain pressure on the Lamanites to make them cross the river. 
As Mormon described the preparations for the Battle of Manti, he placed significant emphasis on the fact that use of a stratagem was acceptable in this case because of the danger to the Nephite people. Clearly, Moroni was worried about future perceptions of his actions, that somehow these actions might be construed as less than honorable because he did not meet the Lamanites in a fair fight. Later, Moroni used a variety of different stratagem, and Mormon did not apply the same explanations to the actions. Either Moroni had accepted the use of deception and elaborate strategies as an accepted part of war with his Lamanite opponents, or Mormon felt his first explanation was sufficient for all of the subsequent actions. Moroni received word of the advance of the Lamanites either through his local reconnaissance or through the operational reconnaissance he sent out immediately following the Lamanite withdrawal at Jershon. It is unclear which though it seems logical that he would receive initial warning through those operational scouts who would clarify that Zarahemna was in fact heading toward the land of Manti, followed by more specific reports on the route of march into the river valley. Zarahemna marched his army north of the hill Ripla and into the actual river valley of the river Sidon. He immediately began crossing the river, and it was during this process that he was attacked. I want to remind the listener that this Lamanite column included somewhere between 9,000 to 12,000 fighters marching on limited, heavily vegetated trails, meaning that maybe they were two or four abreast and marching about a meter apart. That means that the column of fighters stretched something like 2,000 to 4,000 meters or a mile and a quarter to two and a half miles from nose to tail. It would have taken the entire column anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes to pass a given spot given those distances and normal walking speeds. Keep that in mind as we discuss the flow of the battle. When the head of the column reached the river, the tail of the column was a long time and distance from that same spot. A river crossing in any era is a dangerous and difficult proposition. There are numerous historical anecdotes of the difficulty in accomplishing such a military mission, especially when facing an armed and dedicated opponent. Depending on the nature and size of the river, the problems can vary. The Sidon must have been a river of some significance, as we are told that the current was sufficient to wash the bodies of the dead out to sea. Therefore, we can assume that one of the reasons for Moroni's confidence in his placement was that Zarahemna was moving toward a known ford location, a place where crossing the river would be more certain and provide the best opportunity for success. At the river, One of the challenges faced by a commander is that of command and control. The challenge for control is that there is inherent danger in the crossing, even without enemy action. But in this case, Zarahemna and his army were in Nephite territory and close to a Nephite city. Therefore, enemy contact was more than possible. It was probable. The control challenge is how to protect the force while it is vulnerable in the crossing operation. No mention is made in the Book of Mormon of elaborate animal skin bladders used as flotation aids, 
or any other crossing aids or constructions used by armies that were contemporary to the armies of Zarahemla or Moroni, or those from earlier periods like the Assyrian army who did just those same things. It is probably safe to assume that the Sidon River Ford location close to Manti allowed the crossing with little or no swimming necessary. Still, the weapons of warriors would be held above their heads and unusable until they exited the river. The forces in the river could not be easily redirected and therefore control demanded that there should be as few forces in the river at any one time as necessary. However, it was necessary to secure the far side of the river with a force sufficient to protect the bank until the entire army could cross. This was the control dilemma. Get a numerous group across quickly, but do not have too many in the water at the same time where they are useless to the commander and vulnerable to the enemy. The command dilemma is caused by the natural volume of a large river. The river's sound was certain to drown out commands. Even if a person's voice could be heard, detailed communication would be problematic at best. So, Zarahemna could not provide any detailed orders to anyone in or close to the river. He therefore had to select the best time to cross himself. It was not wise to cross too early because he could be cut off by an attack from Manti without sufficient forces to secure the western bank. On the other hand, if he waited too long, he would be useless with the majority of his army on what was sure to be perceived as the enemy's side of the river. He probably would try to cross with the first third of his army, enough to secure the river bank and early enough to plan and direct the attack on the city. It was at this critical moment of decision, I suppose, that Lehi too attacked. It is not clear where Zarahemna was at the time of the attack, but his display as an inspiring leader later in the battle shows him to be aggressive and very capable. This makes it unlikely, in my mind, that his army would panic so quickly with his presence, and therefore, I suppose, that Zarahemna was either crossing himself or on the far side of the river when Lehi too attacked. Lehi too attacked as a, quote, begin crossing, close quote, which means early in the crossing process, the most vulnerable period. We also read in Alma 43.36 about an attack from behind the Lamanites. It is possible, and I am supposing, that this attack came from Moroni's small element that was on the north of the hill Ripla. Faced with confusion inherent in the crossing, unable to see the enemy, handicapped by the roar of the river, and impeded by an armored enemy with the benefit of surprise, the Lamanites crumbled and fled to the river. Lehi too continued to force them back into the river, but maintained his army on the eastern shore. The fact that his army did not cross did not mean that they ceased attacking the opponent with missile weapons. Certainly, slings would have been used throughout the battle, with a river bed providing a ready supply of ammunition. It is possible that the northern portion of Moroni's army would have continued across to help in the encirclement of the Lamanites. 
The size of each of the subordinate elements is not given, but the overall Lamanite advantage of two to one is made clear in Alma 43.51. Lehi, too, had to have a force sufficient to cause the panic and retreat. Therefore, Moroni's personal force was outnumbered by close to three to one, and maybe much more, depending on the losses inflicted by Lehi too and his men. Moroni moved his army out from their concealment in the West Valley, and the battle began. The Lamanites moved away from the opponent toward their only means of escape, the city of Manti. Moroni sprang his final surprise as another element came from the city to fight against the Lamanites. The force coming from Manti is unspecified in the record, but it makes sense that these were the locally drafted recruits when Moroni entered the land of Manti. It is uncertain whether or not they had all of the same armor protection as the rest of the army, but the possibility that they were defending their own homes and families would certainly have provided a significant incentive for their diligence and steadfastness. The Lamanites saw that they were surrounded, and then the desperation of the moment clearly set in for them, as we are told they fought unlike anything the Nephites had known. In this desperate battle, the Lamanites were nearly winning when Moroni inspired his men on to greater courage and success. He achieved this by reminding them of the purpose of the battle, ensuring that they were not simply fighting for honor, glory, or to prove their personal valor and courage, but for the survival of their families and the Nephite way of life and religion. The efforts of Moroni were rewarded with a renewed sense of energy and power sufficient to turn the tide and force the Lamanites back to the water's edge. It was here that Moroni called a halt to the slaughter, sufficient to allow for a negotiated end to the fighting. The discussion on surrender terms shows the human fallibility of Moroni. Not that Additional proof is necessary, but this is one such proof of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Moroni demanded that Zarahemna make an oath. Zarahemna refused on the grounds that he knew he would break such an oath. Zarahemna made an attempt on Moroni's life. Moroni's servant leapt to his aid by scalping Zarahemna. Here we see Moroni not as a certain and unwavering commander, but a forgetful and angry commander when his view of the battle was argued. He changed his surrender terms upon reconsideration forced by Zarahemna's bold promise of a return and future battle. This change forced a personal confrontation where Moroni was protected by a faithful soldier who provided not simply the physical symbol of Lamanite impotence as he hoisted the scalp into the air, but made a promise of further destruction in a brief, but eloquent speech recorded in Alma chapter 44, verses 12 to 14. Zarahemna inspired a final attack on the Nephites, but the Nephites defeated it, causing Zarahemna to agree to the peace terms. The Lamanites left their weapons, swore an oath not to attack again, and then returned to their own lands. Battlefield Leadership This is one of the best examples of leadership within the Book of Mormon narrative. We see a complex battlefield leader who can see the battlefield at numerous levels simultaneously and can also lead effectively in the actual melee. Moroni made a series of bold and critical decisions. The first and most important was his emphasis on preparation. 
This was a hallmark characteristic of Moroni, and one that Mormon discussed on numerous occasions. Moroni placed significant effort on preparing soldiers through weapons and armor. He prepared the battlefield by directing reconnaissance at all levels of strategy. He placed forces at strategic points where they would be most effective. He knew where and when the enemy would strike. Moroni surprised the enemy at one of the most difficult places to surprise an opponent, a danger area, and he protected his force throughout. His second major decision was to divide an inferior force in the face of a superior one. This violates one of the traditional principles of war, mass. He was able to forego mass because he could achieve surprise through mastery of identifying his opponent. His division of force allowed him to attack the opponent from multiple directions nearly simultaneously making what would already be a chaotic environment into a catastrophic one for his opposing commander. His third decision was the placement of his forces in such a way as to sequentially engage the opponent with a fresh force. Though Zarahemna fought against a smaller force, some of his warriors fought a different opponent three times, so they were tired while their opponent always seemed to be fresh. The combination of new opponent after new opponent and simultaneous engagement through several different opponents combined with the use of missiles from across the river weakened the Lamanites. These factors, in addition to the psychological challenge produced through the use of multiple surprises, increased the power of Moroni's understrength force. The fourth major decision was the emphasis on not completing the slaughter of an already defeated force. Moroni maintained his focus on the purpose of the battle and only did that which was absolutely necessary to accomplish his purpose. Of course, it was to his benefit that he was fighting a man whose word he could trust. Significance the Battle of Manti serves as an introduction to Moroni as a battlefield preparer and leader. It is also an introduction to the new way of war. Most of the battles fought in the Amalekiahite War were not an open field battle as seen here. Most of them were physically connected with cities and walls. It gives reason to consider whether or not an obstacle of some sort, wall, fence, ditch, or the small stream depicted in the sketch, was used in the defense of Manti that caused Moroni to reconsider the centuries-old tactics of open field engagements for reliance on fortifications. The Battle of Manti did provide a springboard to efforts by the Nephites to claim greater territory and expand the cities and fortifications to provide greater security for the entire people. Mormon gave an appropriate postscript for this battle and the preparations that followed it, when he said, and I quote from Alma chapter 50 verse 23, But behold, there never was a happier time among the people of Nephi, since the days of Nephi, than in the days of Moroni, yea, even at this time in the twentieth and first year of the reign of the judges. Close quote. Lessons Learned Military History the ability to see the battlefield with future and present eyes has to be the single most important lesson to come from this battle. 
Moroni saw the battlefield enough to prepare effectively so as to deny one fight and win a second. I will express lessons in terms of identification, isolation, suppression, maneuver, and destruction. Identification Moroni understood his opponent in every way it is possible. His understanding of the Lamanite and dissenter cultures allowed him to provide the right inspiration at the appropriate time. He knew how the Lamanites would fight, what they expected to see from the Nephites, and he challenged each of those expectations. He conducted reconnaissance through grand operational and tactical strategy levels, and he also sought the guidance of a prophet to help him understand intentions and future movements as well as current ones. All of this directly contributed to his success. Isolation As Moroni saw the battlefield at all the levels and ways described, he was able to use the combination of a major danger area, the River Sidon, and the element of surprise to emotionally and physically isolate different segments of his opposition. The noise of the river effectively hampered the communications of his opponent and allowed him to execute a plan that fought parts of a superior force rather than the force in total. Suppression. Once again, the river and surprise denied Zarahemna any ability to maneuver. Zarahemna had to struggle to unite his force as they were fighting on different sides of the river, and then at least a portion was engaged around Manti. At no time could Zarahemna mass his force on any one target or control them well enough to direct any purposeful action. It is probable that Zarahemna did not control a single action until the negotiation with Moroni, as his force was constantly divided and fighting separate enemies. Maneuver The position of advantage was physically the crossing site of the River Sidon. Moroni was able to control this on both sides of the river. The emotional position of advantage was gained initially when the Lamanites refused to attack the Nephites at Jershon, and then again when the Lamanites were surprised as they crossed the river. This was an army, the Lamanites, demoralized from the beginning. It is likely that Zarahemna convinced them to attack a perceived weak target in Manti to regain morale, but that failed when Lehi too attacked, surprisingly, at the crossing. Destruction We are not told specific casualty figures, but since the remaining Lamanites who departed with an oath of non-aggression could be considered casualties, much as prisoners of war are counted, then the Nephites had an overwhelming victory. The losses of the Nephites were heavy and worthy of mourning, but given the fact that they were badly outnumbered, it was a tremendous victory. This was a case of physical destruction and the destruction of the opponent's will combined to achieve complete victory. Lessons Learned Spiritual There is no single military event that stands out in greater contrast to the historical facts than does the Battle of Manti. The amount of space that Mormon dedicated to this relatively unimportant battle clearly marks this as a battle of great importance for students of the Book of Mormon. As previously stated, the Battle of Manti encapsulates all of Mormon's three points of emphasis, unity, covenants, and preparation. They are emphasized in the order we typically perform them. First, we prepare ourselves, 
then we enter covenant, and finally we achieve unity. As we tend to these elements in both a sequential and a simultaneous fashion, they are also presented the same way in the recorded events. The men of Moroni entered the first battle of Jershon with complete armor that had not been seen by the Lamanites before. This is Mormon showing us a principle. Mormon used a historical reference to teach the same principle as did Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, about putting on the whole armor of God. The warriors were well prepared, a result of hundreds of hours of labor, all done before the battle and while the people lived in peace. This is a crucial point. Prepare for conflict in times of peace. Moroni did not simply trust in his own devices to learn where the Lamanites were traveling. Moroni took the correct tactical action when he sent spies to learn about the Lamanite march as opposed to settling for the world's solution, which usually results in answers that come too late, leaving one with only one option, to clean up the mess. In a spiritual sense, we could call that repentance. The message from Moroni's experience is that when we seek and follow the counsel of the prophet, we can prevent sin's destruction in our own lives and help others stay protected in theirs. It is my position that Moroni did not simply seek the guidance of the prophet, but that he also knew about the life of the prophet and his experiences and sought to use the lessons from Alma II's success for his benefit. In this case, Moroni knew of the earlier Battle of Sidon crossing that we have in Alma chapter 2, verses 27 to 35, and we explained in episode 18 of this podcast series. And Moroni knew of the importance of the river crossing in this great victory. I think that Alma 2, in his answer to the inquiry from Moroni's servants, might have referred back to the previous event and counseled about the importance of the river in the battle. Regardless of how the lessons of the past were passed along, it seems that Moroni knew of them and used those lessons to aid his current fight. It is another supposition, by me, that Moroni did not wait in Jershon for the answers, but that he began to take action to the best of his ability so that he would be in the best position possible to act on the guidance that came from the prophet. These are all crucial lessons. Learn about the prophet's example. Seek the counsel of the prophet in important decisions. Make the best decision you can and act on what you already know. Follow the guidance from the prophet. Once in the area of Manti, Moroni further prepared the battlefield to set the stage for success by providing for warning of the approaching enemy in order to prevent surprise. He divided and assigned his own forces to ensure the best possible chance for success. This was a well-thought-out plan that involved a great deal of risk. This is also critical in understanding the Lord. He asks us to take risks in His service. But these are risks that one can, should, and must mitigate through preparation and listening to the prophet as Moroni did. I believe that Moroni and Lehi too made a covenant 
to fulfill their assignments and to support each other. This covenant ensured a unity of purpose that was essential for victory in this battle. This commitment to the overall plan allowed their vastly outnumbered army to overwhelmingly defeat a larger Lamanite force, even as the Nephite force was divided and massively outnumbered in every part of the battle. Moroni was not content with the force he had. He called up the local people to defend their own homes. The lesson here is crucial in that when fighting battle, we need to enlist the help of everyone possible. Not just the warriors we see as peers, the seemingly weak and inexperienced can also make a difference in our lives. In fact, they may be the difference in turning the enemy around when it seems like the battle may be lost. The enemy wants our eternal destruction and damnation. Therefore, it is no sin to have a stratagem that allows us to hit him when he is weak, divided, and confused. One needs to seek the opportunity to divide the opponent and therefore fight only a portion in each engagement. Find those times that are most perilous for the enemy and strike then. In the story of the Battle of Manti, the covenants come in three forms, two by inference and one specifically stated. The inferred covenants are first the covenant of obedience to God that Mormon tells us Moroni made in Alma chapter 60 verse 34, and second is the covenant that must have been made between Moroni and Lehi too, allowing both men to act with such faith and conviction. The third covenant is the explicitly stated covenant made by Zarahemna in reference to his surrender as explained in Alma chapter 44, verses 15 and 20. Surrounding the enemy does not mean that one does so from a consolidated position. It is possible to surround the opponent when the group functions with a unity of purpose cemented through covenants. Lehi too and Moroni surrounded Zarahemna, even though they began the battle in very different places, physically separated by a river. This is a powerful image in that division and separation do not have to be disunity. Once Satan has been engaged and surrounded, one cannot give him room to escape. He needs to be surrounded and relentlessly driven to despair. This must be done with constant engagements from all of one's supporters at once. Leaders need to serve the most at such times, as those who are struggling to surround and drive Satan to despair will almost certainly face despair themselves. They need to be reminded why they are struggling, to be encouraged that victory is at hand, and to feel confident that those who are with them are mightier than those who are against them, as was done by the prophet Elisha to his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. Too often we get caught up in the struggle itself, rather than remembering that there is a purpose to all of this. The purpose of the struggle is to stand clean before the judgment seat of Christ. This is about defeating Satan, and not about destroying the children of God. When Satan finally flees the battlefield, he must do so unarmed. This is a clear reference to the crucial importance of the full meaning of repentance. One needs to turn away from the sinful path completely and walk the straight and narrow path with full purpose of heart. 
This is not a time for half measures. The dialogue between Moroni and Zarahemna provides an excellent example of the way that Satan will seek to justify his actions and encourage us to repent at our moment of triumph in half measures. Mormon's lesson screams out, Do not do it. Be stalwart in victory and demand complete and cleansing surrender. Finally, the battlefield needs to be cleared of all of the reminders of the battle and the sin of which one has just repented. One cannot walk away, leaving a battlefield littered with the bodies and flotsam of the conflict to provide future reminders of one's past sins and weakness. Rather, the cleansing of the battlefield makes it once again a place where growth can occur. The complete lessons coming from this battle are important, and they really do lay out a profound and important path for one to walk to return and be with Christ and his Father. Mormon's Metaphor How Does This Battle Support It? Preparation This has already been stated, but the Battle of Manti is possibly one of the great examples of battlefield preparation that did not include fortifications in the entirety of military history, let alone within the Book of Mormon. Covenants Mormon has a theme of reminders demonstrated by the battlefield commanders of his record. This theme is explored through the direct comparison of the opposing commander's motivations. Both are forced by the situations they find themselves in to remind their warriors of the purpose in fighting. In many ways, this is the purpose of covenants, to remind us why we are here and why we are fighting. Unity Unity through separation this is a great example of numerous physically separated forces acting in almost perfect unity to achieve a massive victory. This emphasizes the necessity for a unity of purpose superior to any form of physical unity. Conclusion The Battle of Manti provides the foundation for our discussion of Moroni. We now see many of his primary traits as a commander-in-chief and as a battlefield leader. We will see this again and again in the subsequent campaigns of defense against Lamanite aggression. Here was a man of planning and preparation. He understood and appreciated spiritual inspiration, but also conducted physical and temporal preparation better than most of his contemporary historical battlefield commanders. His success at Manti can be compared with a successful battle by any of the great historical leaders. In each case where great commanders nearly contemporary with Moroni, like Julius Caesar or Hannibal Barca, achieved tremendous surprise victories or victories against great odds, they tended to follow the same patterns described here. Great commanders and great victories require a vision and understanding of the battlefield and the opponent. It is sad that Moroni does not enjoy a place in military history classrooms as one of the best examples of preparation and vision. Moroni understood what motivated and inspired his soldiers. His grasp of the transcendent values of his society allowed him at the crucial moments in battlefield conflict and political conflict to provide those crucial reminders of purpose upon which victory pivots. 
The next episode will be a detailed discussion on preparation as expressed through the actions of Moroni. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.